Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is the very first episode of 2023. And we've got a pretty special episode today. It's a little unusual. We're not talking about a serial killer or any kind of gruesome crime. There is death involved. Well, instead of trying to explain it, let's just dive right into the episode. Today, we're talking about surgery in the 1800s, and specifically, Dr. Robert Liston. So Dr. Robert Liston was known as the fastest surgeon of his time. What he's really remembered for is one particular surgery. And this was before the invention of anesthetic, which would only first be used in 1846. So before then, doctors had to be pretty inventive in order to perform surgeries that would save lives, but also cause the least amount of pain to the patient. Performing the procedure as rapidly as possible, sometimes in under five minutes, was one of the most effective methods. The quicker the surgery, the less chance the patient would bleed out and experience excruciating pain. The consequence was that the accuracy would frequently be foregone in favor of speed. Before we dive into the career and surgeries of Dr. Liston, let's look briefly at the conditions of healthcare and hospitals in the Victorian era. According to uh, HistoryExtra.com, today we view hospitals as models of good hygiene, but hospitals built in the late Georgian and early Victorian eras were anything but sanitary. During this period, there was a position called the hospital's chief bug catcher, whose responsibility it was to get rid of bed bugs, and that position was actually paid more than their surgeons. In fact, bedbugs were so widespread that Andrew Cook, the so-called bug destroyer, claimed to have been uh, sorry, claimed to have gotten rid of more than 20,000 mattresses during the course of his career. The sick and dying were frequently placed in wards with limited access to uh, clean water or even air. Uh, the hospitals were breeding grounds for infection. They also offered only the most basic services for their residents. These locations acquired the moniker Houses of Death as a result of the squalor. The majority of hospitals continued to be filthy, overcrowded, and badly run. In a single day, the St. Thomas's assistant surgeon was required to evaluate more than 200 patients. Before receiving medical care, the sick frequently lingered in squalor for extended periods of time. The stench of urine, vomit, and other bodily fluids pervaded hospitals. The personnel occasionally walked around with handkerchiefs held to their noses because the scent was so repulsive. When entering the operating rooms, doctors used to remove their own jackets and use aprons that were frequently stiff with dried blood and pus. And this was done on purpose. Uh, so these items of surgical attire, along with many others, belonged to staff members who had since retired. And so these blood-covered aprons were proudly worn by their successors as badges of honor. As a result, surgeons carried the distinct scent of rotting flesh with them. During this time period, uh, having surgery at home was safer than doing it in a hospital, where the mortality rates were three to five times higher. Those who had surgery typically had a terminal illness and did it as a very last resort. Few surgery patients experienced any kind of smooth recovery. Many either passed away or struggled to uh, recover their health 
if at all. Those unfortunate enough to end up in the hospital would commonly become victims of a variety of illnesses, the majority of which were fatal in a time before antibiotics. Frances Burney was a novelist, a playwright, and a diarist from the 19th century, and she actually writes about an account of her being awake during surgery, because remember, anesthesia was not a thing. She described the, quote, profound evil of her four-hour mastectomy for a painful tumor in a letter to her sister in 1811. Before her health made it necessary for her to get an operation, Bernie had put off the surgery for years. She wrote, When the wound was made and the instrument was withdrawn, the pain seemed undiminished, for the air that suddenly rushed into those delicate parts felt like a mass of minute but sharp, sharp and forked daggers that were tearing the edges of the wound, But when again I felt the instrument, describing a curve cutting against the grain, if I may so say, while the flesh registered in a manner so forcible as to oppose and tire the hand of the operator. Yet, when the dreadful steel was plunged into the breast, cutting through veins, arteries, flesh, nerves, I needed no injunctions not to restrain my cries. I began a scream that lasted unremittingly during the whole time of the incision, and I almost marvel that it rings not in my ears still. So excruciating was the agony. So if this intro tells us anything, it's that we should all be very, very glad we were not alive in the Victorian era, and that we never had to experience a hospital or a surgery without anesthetic. And I know that healthcare is obviously not the same everywhere in the world, um, but we have certainly seen some medical marvels uh, since the Victorian era, and the invention and use of anesthetic is definitely one of them. So now I want to talk about one particular surgeon in the Victorian era, and that surgeon was Robert Liston. And he was born in 1794 in Scotland, about eight miles west of Edinburgh. His father was the Reverend Henry Liston, a minister in the Church of Scotland, also the inventor of the euharmonic organ, which produced diatonic scales in perfect harmony. We don't have um, any details from uh, Robert Liston's early years, but we do know that after graduating from the University of Edinburgh, he enrolled in Dr. John Barclay's anatomy and physiology classes at the uh, school, the extra mural school in Surgeon Square. He worked as Dr. Barclay's assistant uh, and prosector before moving on to work as Dr. George Bell's house surgeon at the Royal Infirmary. He moves to London in 1816 to pursue his studies at St. Bartholomew's and the London Hospital. When he got back to Edinburgh, he started teaching his own anatomy classes, and James Sim uh, joined him as his partner and eventually as an assistant before they get into a fight and ultimately become rivals. Now, arguments with co-workers would come to characterize Liston's life. He gained a reputation as one of the best operating surgeons of his day between 1818 and 1834. In a time when speed was crucial, his agility and quickness were legendary. Patients who other surgeons had turned away or had been released from the Royal Infirmary following unsuccessful surgery were often successfully operated on by him. However, he was legally expelled from the Royal Infirmary for a term of five years as a result of professional jealousies. 
He moved to London the next year to work as a surgeon at University College Hospital after uh, Sim defeated him for the race for the chair of clinical surgery. He would later go on to become professor of clinical surgery at the University of London, and here he improved his standing as a competent and confident surgeon. Without anesthesia, his limbs could be amputated. Well, not his limbs. He would amputate other people's limbs in a matter of seconds. Uh, it was because of his quickness that Liston earns the nickname the fastest knife on West End. He just excelled at performing swift amputations. Due to his speed and his skill, Liston only lost roughly 1 in 10 patients, and the majority of surgeons at the time lost around 1 in 4 patients, so he had a really good record. He's also a giant for his time, standing um, 8 inches taller than the typical British male at 6 feet 2 inches. He also claimed to be able to cut off a leg in less than 30 seconds and would often, um, in order to keep both hands free while operating, he would actually hold his bloody knife between his teeth. Again, surgery was not the most hygienic place, uh, but Liston was not just quick. He's also a showman. Many operations at the time were performed in operating theaters, uh, which were public spaces in a hospital or an institution where people could observe the surgery. Dr. Liston would challenge the audience to time him before a procedure to demonstrate his renowned quickness. Operating theaters came from the anatomical amphitheaters of the Renaissance, where occasional public dissections were staged to unveil the secrets of nature revealed by God, and this gave rise to surgical theaters. One might observe medical professionals doing an autopsy on a convict's body while simply paying the admission fee. A surgical operating room and a theater stage were combined in the early 1800s to create the operating theater. This was complete with usually a rowdy audience of young physicians. Students would cram into the seats to watch a specific procedure or merely just an afternoon performance. Many potentially talented physicians or surgeons were completely turned off from the medical field after witnessing a surgery on a patient who was awake. Charles Darwin witnessed a surgery without anesthetic while he was a medical student. In 1827, he wrote in his diary, I attended on two occasions the operating theater in the hospital at Edinburgh and saw two very bad operations, one on a child, but I rushed away uh, before they were completed, nor did I ever attend again. The two cases fairly haunted me for many a long year. After his experience, Darwin quickly decided against continuing his medical studies and instead started studying mathematics, the classics, and theology instead. Okay, so back to Liston. Uh, patients occasionally had to camp out in Liston's waiting room for days to wait for their turn to see him because of how highly sought after he was. Regardless of their health, Liston did make an effort to see each and every one of these patients. He particularly enjoyed handling cases that his fellow surgeons had written off as hopeless. It gave him a reputation amongst his peers for being ostentatious. So you're probably wondering, well, this is all interesting, but why are you covering Dr. Liston on historical true crime? What's, what's the crime? Uh, well, it comes down to one day and one procedure. 
Liston is scheduled to amputate a limb, a decently simple process that only required a few tools, a knife, a saw, an assistant to hold down the patient, and the leg that needed to be amputated. So on this particular day, Liston utters his catchphrase, time me gentlemen, and begins the procedure. Liston proceeds with one swift cut, and because he's so concerned with cutting the limb off quickly, he also slices the finger off of one of his assistants who is holding down the patient. He then nearly slashes an elderly spectator when he swings the blade back up and catches his coat. The old man suffers a heart attack out of shock and collapses and dies. So the old spectator's death was merely the first. Liston was completely unaware of this at the time. A few days later, but still as a result of this operation, the second and third deaths occur. The assistant's finger and the patient's amputated leg both contract infections. Uh, They developed gangrene and ultimately succumbed to severe infection, proving afterwards the tools Dr. Liston used had likely been contaminated and maybe not even cleaned in any manner. So those are deaths two and three. So in the course of one operation, uh, he had a 300% fatality rate. In fact, it's the only surgery in history said to have a 300% fatality rate. And that is why uh, Dr. Liston made the list to qualify for his very own episode on historical true crime. Although the three fatalities were by far the most notorious of his career, Liston also became infamous for other unsuccessful operations. He shattered his personal record by completing an operation in two and a half minutes uh, while amputating the leg of another patient. But in his excitement to get things done quickly, he accidentally chopped off the patient's testicles along with his leg. He also once mistakenly removed what he thought was a skin tag at uh, the home of a little boy after mistaking a bump on the boy's neck. The boy died because the lump was actually a cartoid artery aneurysm. But while Dr. Liston made some particularly remarkable mistakes in his medical career, overall, he did save many more lives than he lost. So Dr. Liston also makes medical history towards the end of his career uh, when Frederick Churchill, whose right knee had been giving him tremendous trouble for years, was treated by Liston in 1846. The only treatment left for Frederick since all others had failed was amputation. On the day of the procedure, Liston enters the operating room without a knife and doesn't ask the audience to time him this time. Instead, he pulls out a jar. Now, recently, American dentists and medical professionals had shown that ether could be utilized as a surgical anesthetic. He says, we are going to try a Yankee Dodge today, gentlemen. Uh, Liston tells the crowd for making men insensible. The anesthetic is delivered by Dr. William Squire, a colleague of Liston's. After a few minutes of breathing in the ether through a rubber tube held to Churchill's mouth, he's unconscious. To maintain Churchill in that position, Squire covers his face with a handkerchief laced with more of the substance before Liston starts the procedure. It only takes about 25 seconds to actually finish the amputation. And a few minutes later, to the audience's amusement, Churchill apparently wakes up and inquires about the start time of his amputation. So his first use of an anesthetic is a huge success. 
Uh, more extensive use of ether in surgical settings across Europe would expose some of its shortcomings. It made patients throw up and experience various negative side effects. It could irritate the surgeon's lungs. And in certain windowless operating rooms using gaslight, it could actually ignite and start fires. Liston wouldn't witness the advances in anesthesia because less than a year after the Churchill surgery, he dies on December 7, 1847, of an aneurysm in his home, and he is buried in Highgate Cemetery. Although Liston's legacy will carry on through some of his most prominent students, it's rumored that it was during Liston's first use of ether that James Simpson pondered whether the anesthetic could be administered during childbirth, but initially worried about the effect on the baby. This actually leads him to develop chloroform in 1831. Although at the time it was also created, uh, or around the same time it was created in France and America. Simpson reasons that if ether could induce sleep in humans, then surely other compounds could as well. Simpson, who was 36 years old at the time, published his announcement of a new anesthetic agent in November of 1847 after successfully using chloroform in minor surgeries. On November 8, 1847, Simpson utilizes it for the first time in obstetrics. While chloroform immediately became popular as an anesthetic, Simpson's attempts to integrate it into obstetrics originally fails. Despite possibly being more efficient and appearing to be safer than ether, chloroform posed its own risks. Chloroform agents uh, were discovered to be safer as a result of overdoses and bad responses, which turned um, to strengthening its regulation. Nevertheless, it's necessary to give Simpson credit for discovering the use of chloroform as an anesthetic. Finally, uh, Joseph Lister, who's another one of Liston's students, contributes significantly to the creation of the uh, antiseptic, which reduces the number of infection-related deaths. Lister comes to the conclusion that infection was external since it only affected patients with open wounds, um, as opposed to those who had no flesh wounds, and he did this by comparing patients with simple fractures to those with compound fractures. Before performing any procedure, Lister started incorporating hygiene techniques, making sure that hands were clean and his attire was presentable. So he did not use the blood and pus covered uh, aprons of his predecessors. Lister's unconventional strategies were actually mocked at first, uh, but then Louis Pasteur, a French scientist and microbiologist best renowned for his theories on vaccination, fermentation, and pasteurization, conducted studies that supported his theory that most germs are caught through the air. At that time, carbolic acid was being employed as a potent sewer disinfectant. Lister believed that it was the answer to his issues after it was confirmed that it could be used on human flesh. He begins to use it to clean his hands and the tools he needs for each procedure. He also begins applying a piece of lint that had been coated in carbolic acid to the wounds of his patients. He creates a device that sprayed the acid into the air to kill airborne bacteria. He would go on to continue to hone his methods until he had sufficient evidence that everything he tried worked, and then he published all he learned in the medical journal The Lancet in 1867. 
Lister was also the son of a wine merchant, and so he knew that wine spoilage was caused by improper fermentation, uh, not, as other people claimed, by the emergence of germs accidentally within the wine. So he decided to apply this idea to open wounds. He realized that the only way to avoid infection was to discover a technique to kill the germs before they had a chance to enter the wound. Lister's system took 12 difficult years to become widely accepted, but by 1879, his discoveries had achieved global approval. So Liston, Dr. Robert Liston's two students, made huge contributions to medical history. And despite his own professional setbacks, Liston was still a highly skilled surgeon, potentially the greatest of his generation. He leaves behind a vast legacy uh, in addition to some weird and bizarre tales. But Liston treated every student equally. His teaching strategies in classrooms were learning environments with notoriously high standards that challenged his students. He wasn't afraid to criticize his peers and generally promoted a culture of relentlessly uh, chasing greatness. Uh, And he achieved that. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Historical True Crime. So thanks for sticking with me. I know it was a bit of a unique episode, but I hope that you found... Uh, kind of the history of uh, anesthesia interesting. I sure did when I was researching. And as always, if you like this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or you want to leave us a case suggestion, you can follow us on Instagram at historical true crime pod or shoot us an email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And join us next week for another dark and notorious tale from history. We'll see you then.